Welcome to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and challenged today as you listen to a message from one of our speakers. Prepare your heart and get ready to receive a word from God today. All right, for the talk today, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel is going to be about a fourth of the way through a paper Bible. It's an Old Testament book. 1 Samuel. And uh, to open our time, uh, there was a movie, I think it was called March or the March of the Penguins. March of, did anybody see this? It was kind of, I don't know, what Bar- did, somebody here is very excited about March of the Penguins. I've seen this and I was also watching a documentary thing a few weeks ago about penguins. By the way, we have a staff person uh, named Nolan. His favorite animal is penguin. Is that right? Yeah, so anyway, penguins. Uh, A little bit about the sacrifice that the father penguin will go through for an egg. Next picture, some stats. The father penguin will go without food in up to or down to minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Some of you were chilly today. That's a whole nother level. Minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. They will go without food uh, in dangerously cold weather for up to 65 days. Karen, for that egg, just in hopes of that little dude will make it. Here's a question. What would you do for the sake of the next generation? What would you do? How much of a sacrifice would you make for the sake of the next generation? I would submit some of us parents know I'd do a ton for the sake of the next generation, because you're doing it now. When you think of some of the sacrifices that you make financially, physically, and of course we could tell stories of emotionally what you will do to stay involved with your kids, because why? Because you want them to make it. You want them to thrive. You want them to live. But I don't want to just limit this idea to parents, because some of us, especially those of you that are young, might be joining online, what would you do for the sake of your generation. I think there's something in us that will make us sacrifice for our generation. It's important to us. A little bit of a shift. God has a significant commitment and commands us to care for and Strive to equip and grow up and bless the next generation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image, and God blessed them and said, This is one of the first commands God gave to humanity, is be fruitful and increase in number. It's a command and connection to the future generations. In Deuteronomy 11... He's talking about training children so that they will not just make it in the world, but, but that they will 
be able to inherit the faith. And it says, teach them to your children. Talking about the commands of God and the wisdom of God. It says, teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Feels like we could paraphrase that down to talk about them all the time, right? When you're sitting at home, when you're out walking, teach your children. Talk to them about God. Train them on what God says so that they would raise up and rise up and be in the faith. One of the great examples, of course, is self-sacrifice for future generations is Jesus on the cross who gave his life. Why? So that people could be born again and become spiritual children, be forgiven for their sin. It's in, in essence to do his part for the family of God. It's the idea of what would you do to bless or equip future generations. All right, hold that thought. We're in this series called Battlegrounds. Life is worth fighting for. And today's topic is, I think, a topic we can all agree on its importance. It's the importance of fighting for the next generation. And we're going to take a unique approach to this topic today because we're not going to study somebody who was amazingly good at it. We're going to study a failure, a parental failure at raising up his next generation, specifically his two sons. So we're going to learn from his mistakes. By the way, this is one of the sadder parenting stories in the Bible. By the end of the story, his two sons are so bad that God brings a curse on their family for future generations because the sons turn out that bad. Um, the main, the father character in the story, his name is Eli, and he's a priest of God. And by the way, he didn't fail at everything. Uh, he was uh, used by God in one of the wonderful miracle stories of the Bible where a woman couldn't have children and she comes to him as the priest of God. And, and in essence, he prays for her and she ends up then getting to have a child who becomes a great prophet. So he did well there. Um, he mentors or speaks into the prophet named Samuel, who's like a great prophet. So he did some things well. But on this fathering thing of his sons, bad. Um, so what do we need to know before we read the text? Uh, background. In this season in history, typically sons would inherit the occupation of their father, right? So if, you, if your dad was a mechanic, which I don't know if they had back then, but you would be a mechanic, or if your dad was a farmer, or, does that make sense? That's just the way it worked. And so Eli is a priest, and so his sons are destined, they're supposed to grow up and be priests. But you could argue they were the worst priests ever. Instead of following in like their father's footsteps well. Uh, we're going to talk about this more in the points. But they basically are going to use their position to take advantage of people. And they're going to be remarkably horrible morally. You want to know what they did? 
Just wait, it's coming. Uh, so in the present tense, God is bringing judgment on these two sons. Their names are Hophni and Phineas. Hophni and Phineas, say it. Hophni and Phineas. All right, good job. So God's bringing judgment on the sons. He's holding Eli responsible. And he's giving Eli here, giving away some of the indications on, why, on what Eli did wrong. So we're in 1 Samuel 3, verse 11. It says, and the Lord said to Samuel, that's a prophet, see, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. Here's kind of the meat of it. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of, this is so sad, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for. I don't know if we can go back to verse 13. Uh, for I told him, so I don't know which slide, for I told him, a hey, good, great job. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for. That's where we'll stop. Title of the talk is Fighting for the Next Generation. We're going to try to learn from some of the mistakes of Eli, where he quite literally lost generations that would follow because of these mistakes. Going to pray. Father, whether we're parents, whether we're just spiritual parents with a heart for the next generation, or I also pray just especially for those, we got a lot of younger people at the church, 22-year-olds and 17-year-olds, 12-year-olds, God, for all of us who care about the coming up of the next generation, even those that might just be five years younger than us, I pray that, that, that these next few minutes would equip us to raise up the next generations uh, powerfully. You be our teacher, Lord, and it'll be good. In Jesus' name, amen. Two things I see from the text. The first one is this. Eli lost a generation. Why that makes me sad. Just that introduction, that makes me sad. Does that not make you sad? E Eli lost a generation by, here it is, being too tolerant of sin. Too tolerant of sin. I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but that's my take from the text that says, let's go to the next slide, for I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about, the sin 
Eli knew about. Now, we're going to dive in, and if you want to read the details of this, you just have to go one chapter earlier. It's, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. There's more details of these booger sons of his, but I think we can get through it. So basically, I want to get a little more detail. Uh, first of all, in chapter 2, in verse 12, here's what it says about his sons. It says, Eli's sons were scoundrels that had no regard for the Lord. Let's get a little more specific. I'm going to give you three things, and we're going to walk through part of chapter two, just to get a deeper understanding of this description of they were scoundrels and had no regard for the Lord. The first thing that I think that you'll see if you read the chapter is they abused spiritual authority. Here's some of the text from chapter two. Uh, now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the pr- okay, a sacrifice. Most of the time this was an uh, animal sacrifice, a meat sacrifice. The priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork. This is proper protocol. A three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the, whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how the priests got paid. And so protocol, proper protocol, which left some of it up to chance, up to God, is uh, the, the servant would go out with this, some kind of three-pronged thing, and basically the meat was being cooked and the meat was, and they would, Poke it in, random, come out, okay, that goes on the plate of the priest. That's how they get their food. Does that make sense? Let me fill you in on what the sons did. They, for selfish reasons, decided, we don't like that idea. And so they instead began to, even before the meat was cooked, began to interrupt or force people to give them whatever piece of meat that they wanted so that they could go either broil it or fry it or whatever they this this is what now you might think this isn't a big deal but it, it is a big but it's a big deal I think I can illustrate in a minute so it goes on so if people even people would know this is not the way this is supposed to work they would bully them and they would say hand it over now if you don't I will take it by force. So you got the priests going out and bully the people people about their offering. If you want a similar picture to know what this might feel like, it would be me standing at the front door of the Vineyard Church, and as you came in, you wouldn't get to decide your offering. I would say, give me your purse, and I will figure it out. Does that make sense? And that's not far off from what's happening here. They would say, no, 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 you don't get to decide what you get. I will choose, and, they say, and then I would say, ooh, MasterCard Gold. That's what I want. Does that, how many of you know if this, like, we would all not be going to this church if that's the way it were. Like, we know in our hearts, that's nobody, you would never do that. That's what they were doing. So they were abusing spiritual authority. The next thing, they were mixing sensuality with spirituality. In verse 22, it describes that they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
which would be like the pastors hitting on the females on the greeting team. Can we all agree? That's not good. And I don't think it would be far off to imagine them, because these women were serving in the temple of the Lord, so so Hophni, Hophni and Phinehas would, during their priestly break, like, okay, well, we got to do a They might then go out and, you know, saunter around the tent of meeting and hit on whoever they, and hook up between, is this not feeling pretty yucky? If it doesn't feel yucky, are you a human being? This is bad. So does that make, this is, they're hooking up casually with the ladies of the church. They should not be doing that. And I think you could argue, this is also that we realize when God curses them, there was a big deal there. And you could argue that they did this without shame. They sinned without shame. Because in verse 23, when Eli is talking to his sons, he, he, it says, I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds. In other words, everybody knows they're doing it. Now here's the huge mistake of Father Eli. He doesn't do anything or puts very little effort into bringing correction into this horrible situation. So here's my interpretation of what's going on. Here's the fill in the blank. Eli was lazy regarding obvious sinfulness. That's what I think is going on. Just being lazy regarding obvious sinfulness. His spiritual responsibility was to do something way more than anything he was doing. And we're going to spend the rest of this point uh, teasing out the idea. This is just going to come up on the screen. Here's the deal. Overlooking an obvious sin is never a good plan. It's never a good plan. Do we love the next generation? Do we love each other? Overlooking an obvious sin is never a good plan. Let me give you some ways. But by the way, can we also agree, it's easy just to overlook sin. Like if your friend, uh, Christian, non-Christian friend, hey, last night I went to the bar and I drank a bunch and so I ended up hooking up with this girl, I don't even know her name, and da-da-da, tells the story and they go, wow, it's really great. And isn't it easy as a friend sometimes not to say anything when really if we love them, someone needs to say, I'm not celebrating that. That's not good. Shouldn't do that. Wasn't good for them. Not good for you. Does that make sense? Or someone says, hey, I found out through some loophole of the law, I can, I can actually stay in my apartment and not pay my rent, but legally, they can't kick me out. And so I'm not going to pay my rent because they can't kick me out. You know what someone needs to say into that situation? There's a difference between what you can get away legally and what you should do morally. If you're renting a place from a person, you're supposed to pay your rent. I don't care. Does that make sense? 
And we need that. If we're gonna, we all need that in our lives. The next generation needs to know that's not God's plan for your life. You're an able-bodied person. Pay your bills. Does that make sense? So we, that's what we want for them. That's, that's being a, a good brother or a sister in Christ or a good mom or a dad spiritually. Or the person who said, man, I haven't been to church in a year. I don't know, I just haven't been paying attention. But someone needs to say, in love, oh, that's not good. You're ignoring the creator of the universe. If you, you're not doing any Bible time. You haven't prayed in hot, what? Someone needs to jump into that and say, stop where you're headed. You need to go a new direction. A couple, couple verses Galatians 6, 7 says, a man reaps what he sows, whoever sows to please their flesh, that's sin, from the flesh will reap destruction. So if you care, you need to say something. The word destruction there looks like this, thorah. It means corruption, destruction, or decay. Some of us have experienced enough sin, we've been around long enough to know, sin left unchecked opens us up to, to decay, doesn't it? Eats away at you, hurts your soul, can mess us up emotionally. And so if we love people, we care about the next generation, we care about brothers and sisters, we need to try to say something, do something. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, that's a lot of us. How, much, how many of us are trying to live by the Spirit, right? Online, trying to live, like we're really trying to do this. You who live by the Spirit, if someone's caught in a sin, you should restore that person. Do what we can for them. Apparently, Eli should have engaged a lot stronger with his sons. So, finishing up this point, the idea of bringing it in the room. Think of, your next, think of the next generation. Some of you are raising kids. Think of your six-year-old, your 12-year-old, your 18-year-old. Some of you are, you know, you're 22. Think of your peers, right? And here's the question. Am I, you can fill this in, appropriately addressing sin? Because arguably, it's life or death with the next generation. Am I appropriately addressing sin. I want to be clear. This is not, I am not deputizing us all to be the sin police. Okay? We're not like supposed to run around with our, what's that round thing that magnifies, what's the magnifying glass, right? Oh, wait, wait, I think I saw you sin. Ah! You know? But this was evident sin. This was repeated sin. This was unrepentant sin. And for those situations, am I appropriately responding? I'm going to give you a side note. I wish I had known this earlier, but it just was today, uh, just an hour ago. I thought of Ezekiel 33. If you want to write down a great chapter to read, read Ezekiel 33. It's an Old Testament book, and it talks about our responsibility to warn people sometimes. Ezekiel 33. Am I appropriately addressing sin? Uh, finish this point. Side note to parents. This has been a forever point, hasn't it? Um, 
Sometimes, this, I know that I failed in this way. Sometimes we can like have an all hands on deck for our 13 year old son because he's missing free throws and we're like, he doesn't keep his elbow in and he's never gonna win the, the uh, Mr. Basketball if he doesn't get his elbow. And so we'll be like, all hands on deck. I'm gonna hire a personal trainer. We're gonna drive to Wisconsin because that's the best free throw shooter in the world and he's gonna coach him. You know how sometimes we can like all of a sudden go, oh my, this is the right, the house is on fire, we have to fix this. We should make sure that some of those house on fire moments are lined up with God's personal priorities. And so what I would say to you, one of the priorities that we should be willing to go, uh, go to war for, watch for rising or patterns of sin in your kids. So if, you're, if, you're, if your eight-year-old daughter lies, and, and then you know she's, how I many parents, we know when our kids are lying. Did you know that? Is that true? Pretty much? No? Liar? Oh, sorry. <laughs> if those things start to bubble up and be patterned, again, I'm not sin police, like one mistake, a stump, but if that starts to bubble up, can I tell you, that's when we should be parentally all hands on deck. You should start praying your guts out, because if that kind of a sin gets a root in them and develops, that's the problem. I'm stretching this point forever. I don't care. A friend of mine two days ago was telling me he was 21 years old. So this is like the positive side of maybe being like a great father. He was 21 years old, lived in a small town, uh, and he had been at the little town bar like all day. And his father, little small town atmosphere, his father apparently had driven past enough times to realize, that's my son's car. Wait, that's still my son's car. How long is my son going to be in the bar? And he told me, this guy was 21 years old, 9 p.m. at night. I don't think he lives at home anymore. His father came walking into the bar and talked to him as his son in front of all of his friends. And he said this, you need to go home. My, my friend didn't like his dad in that moment. But I think it was with fondness that now he looked back and thought, I'm so glad I had a dad who loved me enough to, to say something like that. Eli lost a generation by being too tolerant of sin. One more. Eli, did I fill in all the blanks? Did we get them all in? Okay. Second thing. He lost a generation by not imparting self-control. Not training his children to grow up with a sense of, I'm in control of my own urges. In the text, it says, he failed to restrain them. Have you ever seen a person who didn't have restraint? I'm going to tell you about a, maybe a four-year-old, five-year-old. Four-year-old? I don't know. We didn't interact. I was just observing. This was in the last week at the Meyer grocery store. Now, I know we see little things like this every once in a while, 
this was out of control child on steroids. So this is not, all right? Most of us know parenting has good moments, bad moments. This was bad. This was, I, okay, I'll just describe it. I'm in the ice cream aisle. But I'm not sure the kid was yelling about ice cream because he may have been down far enough that it's where like the chicken nuggets were. But little Billy began to scream. I'm just going to pretend it was chicken nuggets. I want those chicken nuggets. I will have those chicken nuggets. You will get me those chicken nuggets. You better get... And it was... Now, are you picturing this? I'm not exaggerating. I'm 40 yards away, and I'm pushing my cart, and I go... By the way, I think everybody else in the aisle stopped. This went on. It felt like an eternity. You will not, the last I saw, the father, and the father was, I don't know what he was doing. He ended up continuing to move as the child kept saying, go back and get my chicken nuggets. I guarantee you, within six rows of the mire, everyone was hearing the chicken nugget scream. It was crazy, it was crazy extreme. In fact, we had a little parental powwow it was like we all gathered for therapy afterwards. <laughs> we all had this common experience of that was bad. Because we were all, did you, how would you say, did you hear that? And one lady stopped me. She said, if that had been my kid. And then another one said, if, if I had done that. Right? So anyway, so what I'm saying is I think probably even though some of us have more grace for kids and ungrace for kids, all, I think basically 99% of all humanity, if they were at Meyer, would have went, this is bad. Not good. So here's a question that I have about Chicken Nugget Boy. What happens if Chicken Nugget Boy goes unchecked? What happens? What happens to Chicken Nugget Boy when he's 6 or 8 or 12 or 15? Can I submit to you an idea? Chicken Nugget Boy changes his name to Hopney. Or Phineas. That's what happens. If you get to the core of Hophni and Phineas's problems, what are they doing? I want my meat the way I want my meat. Is that not true? I want to have sex however I want to have sex. Without the bound, no self-control. I just want, I want my urges the way I want my urges. And if we don't train parent, if we don't care enough to confront and help them develop self-control, we are messing up not serving the next generation so they can deal with the realities of life. Proverbs 22, 15 says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. <laughs> it doesn't say cinnamon spice is bound up in the heart of a child. It says folly. That word can also be translated foolishness. And at the root of the word is, you may not like this at all. You know, sometimes God says stuff through the Bible that we may not like, but it, we need to hear. That word is connected to the root word that describes evil. Evil is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline will drive it far away.
We don't want evil to settle into any of our friends. How many of you don't want evil in your own life? (laughs) And you need friendships and people and mentors and people over us that will say, you go home. You stop that. That's a sin. And pray and develop an ability for us to say no to things, although we have sensual urges or we have gut reactions and we think, man, I want that. But the mature follower of Jesus and the mature human being knows how to discern, yes, I may have an urge for that, but I also have an ability to say no to that because I've flexed those muscles in my life and I am not driven like an animal to say yes to everything that I feel like I want. Does that make sense? Like we need to help each other. It's part of our spiritual responsibility as parents. So we'll finish up with this last little bit. How, here's a question, it's a million dollar question. How does one instill restraint in another person? How do we help each other? How do we help the next generation? And these are the last couple fill in the blanks. Here's an idea. We do it by starting young. Restraint comes from starting young. Kind of a famous Bible verse. If you haven't heard it, if you hang around the Bible or church long, you will. It says this in Proverbs 22, 6. Start children off. It says start children off in the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Start children. Start young. And the other hint or clue, or I think it might be helpful in how do we instill restraint in another person, is I didn't know I would go here. I think it was God leading me. It was emphasize God's spirit. Let me tease this out and we'll be done. Emphasize, in other words, create an opportunity for our friends or the next generation to have experiences with God's spirit. It is incredible how much intimacy with God and experiences with his spirit will create in us self-control. In Galatians chapter 5, it describes the fruit of the spirit right? Uh, But the fruit of the Spirit is in, it goes on with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, those things. One of them is self-control. If you are filled with this, how did Jesus walk through life in a perfect way? He was filled with the Spirit, so he could say yes to God, and he could also use restraint in every temptation. He was filled with the Spirit. Some of you know some of my uh, stories when I was after I became a Christian, and, and I was a cusser uh, pre-Christ, and for a couple months as, when I became a Christian, I dropped the F-bomb no matter what. So you know my pool story where I was playing pool and I missed the shot, and I should have made the shot because I was an okay pool player, and so the F-bomb came out of my mouth, and the Spirit of God, I didn't see anything, I didn't hear an audible voice, kind of snuggled up beside my left ear because I had become a Christian, and he said something like, you're not going to talk like that anymore. And I'm like, okay. Now, by the way, he didn't just confront me, but can I also say somehow that moment with God, he also empowered me to not talk like that anymore. It just changed. 
He did, I had the same kind of encounter in some of my moral life where I was headed this direction and then God came into my life and then he said, that's not right and that's not how you treat people and so here's a new way. And I significantly went, okay. It's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit can change a life. I was talking with someone within the last hour and they were becoming free from addictions in their life and part of they want, and I want to get together and hear their story because they started talking about, I had an encounter with God. And I've been free for, I think they said, 65 days. But part of the story was an encounter with the Spirit of God. I have a grandson. Let's put him up on the screen. It's Judah update. I want him to be great. I know his parents want him to be great. So we should do a lot of things. We should teach him to read and we should do other, but one of the things that I was reminded of, if you want him to grow up and be great, which includes restraint, self-control, what is that little boy going to need? He's going to need to have personal closeness with the Holy Spirit. So how do you do that with little kids? Well, you ask them, what's the Lord saying? And when they come to you and they say, I think I, I think I know what God wants me to do, you, equip, you say, you can absolutely hear the voice of God. And when you personally, as a parent or as a mentor, like you have an experience with God, you share with them, what does that look like? You pray your guts out for them, not that they would, not that, not that they would just become religious or that they wouldn't do anything too bad, you pray over them that they will have personal encounters with God because an encounter with God will do more than we can ever train them up to be. We've got to be desperate for our kids to have that personal, intimate experiences with the Holy Spirit. Because when that comes, if they're like this with the Holy Spirit, think of all the things it fixes. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Life's going to be pretty amazing. You guys have been super patient. Last fill in the blank. Am I adequately inviting the next generation to experience God? Let's be a church that invites all ages to experience God. Recap. Eli lost a generation by being too tolerant of sin and by not imparting self-control. Going to do, uh, for those of you on site, by the way, reminder, those of you joining us, online um, prayer at thevineyard.org. We're going to be monitoring that over the weekend. Uh, if you're on site over here, there'll be a group of people. They'll pray. You may just want to come up and join with someone and pray for your son or your daughter or next generation. Over here, I'm going to do a group prayer for anybody that wants to pray for their own heart that they will be effective in training up and equipping the next generation. Now that may, you may be part of that next generation. You may be 16 and you're here and you think, I want to impact my generation. I'm just going to pray for us all over here. Why don't you stand and we'll close. 
Thanks for listening to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We pray you were impacted by this message. God bless and see you next time.